Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hello, everybody. I'm Lou Dobbs. President Biden is a source of constant embarrassment on the best of days, but his time spent in Belgium and Poland weren't the best of days. The White House had to work overtime with their Biden shovels, cleaning up all the messes he made in Europe over the past several days. First, in Brussels, when he declared the United States would respond in kind if Putin were to use chemical weapons in Ukraine. His national security advisor had to explain America won't use chemical weapons, that the president meant the United States would respond, quote, accordingly, end quote. In Poland, the White House had to explain the president didn't mean to tell our soldiers of the 82nd Airborne that they would actually be in Ukraine, witnessing the strength and courage of the Ukrainians as they fight the Russians, explaining that American troops will not be going to Ukraine to fight. Good to know. And President Biden concluded his last speech in Poland, declaring, quote, for God's sake, This man cannot remain in power. Does that sound to you like President Biden was calling for Vladimir Putin to be removed from office? Well, me too. But no. And soon the Biden shovels were heard scraping up the mess he had just made. What appeared to be Biden's call for regime change in Russia was actually, the White House insisted, only another Biden blunder. And the White House almost immediately went into its well-accustomed damage control and correction mode, denying that President Biden was calling for regime change, only saying Putin can't exert power over the region. You buy that, don't you? Yes, me too. And the correction is clearly not artful or believable, but the media just nodding their compliant heads and moving on from what has been an embarrassing series of blunders in this Biden boondoggle to Europe that is now mercifully ended for the Euros with the president's return to the White House. That's right. The president's home and every one of the corporate media journalists can return to coverage of his disastrous choice of a leftist activist judge to sit on the Supreme Court, his authoritarian mandates and controls over the people as the COVID has ebbed, of course, and he insists on keeping his National Emergencies Act powers for as long as possible. He loves power, doesn't he? Vetoing the call to end the National Emergencies Act and other skullduggery. Our guest with us today to take up all of this is the senior editor-at-large at at Breitbart News, attorney, conservative commentator, and author with us, Joel Pollack. Joel Pollack, great to have you with us here on The Great America Show. I'd like to start with the the president's uh, news conference uh, at uh, NATO uh, and his remarkable uh, 
statements about Charlottesville uh, and and putting that out in in a national security environment abroad. Uh, it, it was stunning. Your thoughts? Well, there's a tradition that politics ends at the water's edge. And you don't attack your opponents when you're overseas representing the country, even if you are the president. And this was violated, I think, really by Obama first. And Trump went over the line a few times. But Biden didn't just attack his opponents and his predecessor. He used a debunked lie, which we know is the Charlottesville very fine people hoax, which falsely claims that Trump praised the neo-Nazis who rioted in Charlottesville, Virginia in 2017. In fact, Trump said they should be condemned totally. And right. that's the reality. The hoax was debunked in the vice presidential debate by Mike Pence back in 2020. It was debunked again in the Senate during the second impeachment trial. But Biden went there. And to say that overseas, it's not just an attack on Trump. It's actually an attack on America, because what he's saying is that America is beset by these neo-Nazis. To go overseas and say that, it's really just extraordinary. Yeah, And did it look to you uh, as he started the uh, uh, this uh, this remark uh, was that question about Trump a plant? Do you think? No, I think that the European reporter who asked the question reflects the elite opinion in Europe, which is that Trump was a problem because he put pressure on NATO members to live up to their commitments to spend two percent of gross domestic product on defense. I thought that view was rather disfavored because. Germany now, seeing that Russia has actually invaded Ukraine, has finally agreed to live up to their commitment. They're going to be spending 2% of gross domestic product on defense, the way Trump tried to get them to. Maybe if they'd listened to Trump, Russia would never have invaded Ukraine. But because the NATO members were so delinquent in their defense spending, they now have Vladimir Putin knocking on the door of NATO, invading Ukraine and so forth. So I, I thought that this skepticism of Trump was rather outdated. In fact, Recent events, I think, have proven his approach to be rather prescient. But they want Biden. They want the soft American leader who doesn't ask too much of them, who keeps sending American troops and American resources and allows Europeans to live with their expensive social welfare systems. And when Russia invades, they ask America for help. And that's that's how they prefer it. It's comfortable. But I thought it went out the window when Russian tanks encircled Kiev. I, I don't know. But anyway, that was the place the, the question was coming from. It was really coming from that old European elite opinion. And when Germany started uh, shipping weapons uh, to Ukraine, uh, that's when I thought maybe that uh, uh, that mode had been broken. But uh, the reality is that Trump was right. It's un to me, it's uh, unambiguous. It's straightforward. NATO would be in a far better position today. And I don't believe Ukraine, I agree with you, would have been invaded by Russia had NATO been strong and ready for anything. And right now they are scurrying to try to figure out how to cover their eastern flank, the eastern flank uh, nations of NATO. Uh, and they really are at a loss for contingency strategic responses. That in itself, Jules, surprises me that this defense alliance, NATO, is not prepared to defend Europe. Doesn't that shock you? It's shocking. And yet this is what Trump was warning about. When Trump said NATO seems to have a lot of money to spend on a fancy headquarters in Brussels, but it doesn't have enough money to do what it's supposed to do. And then it wants America to foot the bill for the really important stuff. That's what he was getting at. Yeah. And 
you know, Trump's foreign policy was condemned by all the geniuses in Washington and in Brussels, but he was he was right. And, and now yeah. you see the result. And so there, there is no policy in NATO and there's no Biden administration policy to come out of this with any kind of advantage. I mean, the way I explain it to people is that Biden decided to begin this chess game by choosing the black pieces, which moves second. So Biden's always reacting to what Vladimir Putin does. And, you know, if you know chess, you know that when two grandmasters play, usually the player with the black pieces doesn't try to win. Player with the black pieces tries to draw, maybe force the player with the white pieces into some kind of blunder. But you're not playing to win. You're just playing to draw at best and to keep the game going as long as possible. With Trump, he always had the white pieces. He was always moving first, always had his opponent trying to guess what he was going to do next. Now we're in the same position vis-a-vis Putin. We, we are allowing Putin to take the initiative. We're always guessing what he's going to do next. And amazingly, Biden and the Biden administration and all the intelligence agencies and everything, they keep telling the world that we have no idea what Putin's going to do, which itself is sort of a weird thing to say. But that's the position he's put us in. And it was a choice. It wasn't something that just happened. Biden chose that strategy. Uh, you know, I you, you give Biden great credit. I, I personally, Joel, believe that this man hasn't given a thought uh, to to the strategic advantages that uh, he possesses or or lacks. Uh, and I do believe you're absolutely correct about him uh, being reactive, but I don't really get think there's as much conscious uh, thought on his part uh, into that uh, as it is simply instinctive on his part. Uh, President Trump, by the way, was a counterpuncher. Uh, he would play black uh, on the uh, uppermost level of the of the chessboard, and then the other two dimensions, uh, he would be wailing uh, and absolutely correct in his judgments about whether it be balanced trade, whether it be strategic uh, weight uh, in uh, Eastern Europe. Uh, he was absolutely right. He was absolutely right about China. And no one is talking about China now. Have you noticed that? Here is the strategic yeah. partner of the uh, of this run, this absolute monster uh, that uh, Vladimir Putin has revealed. And no one's talking about the reticence of uh, Xi Jinping to condemn him. No one is talking about the importance of his providing a buffer against sanctions uh, and and standing shoulder to shoulder uh, with this monster. Why not? Well, it's very, very interesting. And here we have to look not just at the ideological orientation of the Biden administration, but at some of the personal financial interests of the Biden family. And this is what my colleague Peter Schweitzer has exposed Mm -hmm. in his book, Red Handed. And this is really about the Chinese Communist Party being able to influence American politicians and American corporations through its financial pressure. And in the case of Hunter Biden, through direct business dealings. This should have come out clearly into the American mainstream media before the 2020 election. The New York Times recently admitted that Hunter Biden's laptop was real, that the stories coming out of that laptop were legitimate. And that's the end. The media now think that they have atoned for their past sin of suppressing that story, and they're not following up any of the leads. Biden's connection with Chinese companies, 10% of a joint venture apparently set aside for former Vice President Biden. So we don't know anything more than we knew, except that the media now are admitting it was all true, at least what we knew at the time. But the American public should have had that information when they went to vote. They should have known that Joe Biden was deeply, deeply in the pockets of the Chinese Communist Party. And that's why you're not seeing a focus on China, because Biden came into office with the stated ideological commitment to the idea that China was not a rival, but a 
competitor and we could have friendly relations. I think that went out the window over the last several years. And we need to take China much more seriously, but we're not. We are a nation right now uh, so dependent upon China that any move we would make offensively militarily uh, would result in great scarcity and uh, great difficulty for this economy and for our society. And no one wants to say that out loud, do they? No, they don't. And th this is part of the problem. We've also hemmed ourselves in by cutting off our energy industry, by cutting down American manufacturing. There has been a movement, perhaps a grudging realization that Trump was right about these things. You're starting to see the Biden administration talk about some of the things Trump talked about, like producing goods in America, fixing our supply chains, making sure that we can produce computer chips and pharmaceuticals and so forth. But there really hasn't been a commitment, you know, and the, the Biden people like this phrase whole of government. They have a whole of government approach to this problem and that problem. We've yet to see a whole of government approach to the challenge that China poses. And let's just talk about one of those challenges specifically, which is fentanyl. You know, we have tens of thousands of Americans dying every year from this. This is not a recreational drug in the way that others are. People often are exposed to it, thinking they're taking some other drug and so forth. It's incredibly deadly. And I was talking to someone recently who said that they've treated patients who have struggled with opiates and with fentanyl, and it's almost like it replaces their brains. I mean, this, this is a drug that people find impossible to resist, and it, it's, it's deadly in, in not even very large doses. And China is manufacturing it, and it's getting across our southern border and getting in through other ways. And we don't have any kind of seriousness from the Biden administration in fighting it. I mean, Trump started the fight. I think he could have done more. But he never had any support from the Democrats, and now they've just opened the southern border. So we have this deadly attack on our society manufactured in China coming through the southern border and other ports of entry. And, and we're not seeing any attempt to deal with it, but it's, it's destroying a generation of Americans. Do you recall when President Trump stepped into the Oval Office uh, in 2017 and he immediately declared war on the cartels? And you were, it was a rallying cry and it was a commitment and he followed through on it, but not with the same, uh, uh, you know, reaction from other parts of government. You're talking about whole government, whole government went quiet, quiescence prevailed uh, and none of the Homeland security didn't say a word. Uh, the border patrol didn't say a word, uh, the FBI, the justice department, the state department all went radio silent and never yeah. did you hear a single agency a single department yeah well you hit the nail on the head when trump came in and declared war on the cartels the state department pushed back because declaring war on the cartels meant upsetting certain interests in mexico with which the united states has commercial ties and so trump was never allowed really to do what was necessary to fight the cartels because they were important interests both in the private sector and in the federal government that did not want him to do that. He had to fight his own government. He even had to fight his own party on the issue of the border wall because Republicans in Congress, even with control of both houses, were very reluctant to approve funding for it. And they couldn't get past some of the Democratic opposition in the Senate either. So, you know, this, this has been a problem from the beginning. And I don't know how we undo the damage very easily now that Biden's caused with nearly 2 million people coming across the border since he took office. It's just a non-issue for the Washington press corps. You know, you mentioned the media. They have White House press briefings almost every day. 
And almost nobody ever asks about this. I mean, the Fox people do a pretty good job of, of challenging on the issue of the day, but this issue is every day and, and somehow it's not a crisis. Yeah, somehow it's not a crisis because the uh, these are, let's be clear, there is no independent news organization being represented in, in the White House press corps that's going to be engaged with the president, at least. It's really stunning to see what, what a scary uh, cowardly society we have now in the face of this brute power from corporate America and a government that is weaponized against the American citizen. Yeah. And I think people are starting to realize that if they want a government that's responsive to them, they're going to have to vote for something other than what they've got. And this is true of Democrats as well. I mean, I think there are a lot of people Look at the Hispanic community, for example, which has seen absolutely nothing from Democrats. And especially the border counties in Texas, there are some predominantly Latino counties there that are moving into the Republican column because they're seeing firsthand what the border crisis is about. Um, but, you know, here in California, where I am, the Hispanic community has the same concerns most working class Americans do education, jobs, health care. And they're seeing the school systems destroyed by the teachers unions, which control the Democratic Party. They're seeing California regulations and taxes drive out industry, making everything more expensive. The inflation issue is huge. So people are starting to realize, I think, that the Democratic Party is connected to the policies that are making their lives more expensive and more difficult. And I think that's what's fueling the backlash. You, you can almost leave out what the Republican platform is going to be in 2022, because the dissatisfaction with what people are getting from the Democratic Party is almost the campaign in itself. We're going to be very fortunate to have a party that insists on uh, the security and the integrity of our electoral system and works toward that end from now until the November of this year in the midterm elections. I, I don't see the Republican Party doing anything. Uh, the Democratic Party uh, have different interests and therefore will not be doing anything to secure uh, lock boxes uh, to remove them from this uh, from this election. Uh, they want to perpetuate the idea that uh, the BA2, a variant of Omicron, uh, is a serious and deadly and frightening surge uh, of a virus that is going to require us to remain in a national emergency, so says the president. Uh, you know, through at least the midterms, the American people are not right now sufficiently awakened. Forget awoke. They're not awakened to the reality that the Democratic Party, the radical left in this country are Marxist. They are undermining and subverting this country, our government uh, and our uh, our elected officials. It is stunning stuff. The degree to which the, uh, America's society right now is slumbering through what is a devastating takeover uh, of the of the national uh, the national institutions. Yeah, and you know, I was speaking to people this week about those institutions. That the most important one that they are trying to take over is the educational institutions, and that came up in a very alarming way during the confirmation hearings of. Judge Ketanji Brown Jackson, who, of course, has been nominated to serve in the Supreme Court. And, and Ted Cruz asked her in a very fascinating exchange. He asked her whether she thought critical race theory, the idea that America is fundamentally racist and that racism is inherent in our institutions, 
he asked her whether it should be taught in schools or whether it was taught in schools. And she said she didn't think it was taught in schools at all. Mm-hmm. And then he showed that it was taught in her school, the school in Georgetown, Georgetown Day School, a private school on which she's a board member. So that was embarrassing for her. And she had to walk it back and say, oh, no, I thought you meant just public schools and so forth. But Ted Cruz then produced a series of visual aids, little posters that were selections from a book by Ibram Kendi, one of the critical race theory ideologues who makes a pretty good living, apparently, from giving lectures to corporations and universities and things like that about this radical theory. And the book is called Anti-Racist Baby. And you see these illustrations of a baby talking about race and pointing to a little board with baby letters on it that spell the word race. I mean, it's, it's so disturbing. And, and that's what's happening in our institutions. And it isn't just happening at law schools and college classrooms. It's, it's happening in, in this case, in the pre-K level. I mean, it's happening with the earliest children. Yeah. It's happening in that school. uh, And the board member is what this president wants to uh, they want her to be promoted to the the u.s supreme court and she lied about her capacity to do anything to influence crt and the curricula she's lying her way through this and that has become uh, the default default initiative of the left in this country lie lie subvert and subvert and seize control and they are, they are this close uh, to, to achieving absolute success. Uh, don't you agree? They are. They are. But, you know, Americans are stepping up. We saw in the 2021 off-year elections in Virginia and New Jersey, they're stepping up. They elected Glenn Youngkin, who promised to oppose critical race theory in the schools. They elected a truck driver in New Jersey who defeated the incumbent Democratic state Senate president. So people are waking up. And I hope it continues. I hope Republicans continue to talk about these issues, particularly the schools. You know, the most important voting bloc that came out in 2021 for Republicans was suburban moms. And many of them had voted for Biden in 2020. Despite everyone being told exactly the opposite, that Trump could never and the Republican Party could never, ever again count on uh, the suburban mothers. Right. So. They came out in droves, and I think they're going to stay on the Republican side, at least for these midterms and possibly for 2024. They, they have seen firsthand the cost of Democratic Party policies, not just in terms of critical race theory and the transgender ideology being forced on people. And by the way, I have no problem with people living transgender lifestyles as adults. I think live and let live. It's fine. But telling kids that there are no men and no women, no boys, and no girls, you know, Ketanji Brown Jackson couldn't define the word woman. She claimed to be an originalist. I mean, she was explaining to Senator John Cornyn and to others that she believes in interpreting the Constitution based on the words in the Constitution first. So she's trying to pose as some kind of legal conservative. But when it comes to a word like woman, she won't say what it is. So, you know, your originalism can't be very good if you can't define a word like woman. I mean, it's it's practically the first word in the Bible. You know, in the beginning, God created man and woman. I mean, it's right if there. So, And if you're sitting in that chair because you are a black woman, as the president of the United States himself said, you would think that she, of all people, would understand the definition of woman, uh, particularly right. uh, in that context. Well, that's right. In the sense that every other five minutes we were being told we were being told that it was 
very important to celebrate her achievement as a black woman. Mm-hmm. And she was asked specifically by Diane Feinstein about what it meant to be a woman up for this nomination and how it would feel to be the fourth woman on the court, almost achieving gender parity. So we're celebrating her womanness, but then when she's asked what it means to be a woman, she says, well, I don't know what that means. <laughs> so what it means is, I guess you get to be on the Supreme Court. I, I don't know if it means anything more than that to her. I have to say that if this woman is uh, does make it to the Supreme Court, uh, God help America. Uh, there is an issue of, uh, at, there is a tremendous issue here of her integrity, uh, her uh, honesty, uh, and certainly her knowledge. For her to say she did not, uh, does not remember fully the Dred Scott decision of 1857, uh, in, in which the Supreme Court ruled that Americans of African descent were not citizens. And the impact of that and the importance of the 14th Amendment, uh, which three years after the Civil War uh, overturned uh, Dred Scott. I mean, it was a stunning, mad moment. She doesn't know how to define woman. Well, the uh, importance of, you know, let's talk about Dred Scott for, for a minute here. The, the reason it came up was that John Cornyn, the senator from Texas, mm-hmm. pointed out that the substantive due process doctrine that she was upholding as a way to read new rights into the constitution that weren't specifically there gave the judges so much leeway that if you gave judges that much power they could do what they did in the dred scott case which was to effectively legalize slavery Mm -hmm. by usurping this authority to read things into the constitution that weren't there so it's it's recognized today as one of the worst decisions ever made by the supreme court but You know, once you give judges discretion, they don't just use it for good things and nice things. They use it for terrible things. And I can think even of other cases recently, you know, the the infamous property rights case, Kelo versus New London, where the uh, Supreme Court, you know, to its uh, discredit, allowed the city council in a Connecticut town to seize private property for the benefit of a private developer. I mean, a lot of people will tell you that was a terrible case. Uh, This is a court that is intellectually deficient uh, as uh, the courts for the last 20 years have been really uh, it, it is it, it's really uh, an awful thing to contemplate uh, that we would be putting another person of inadequate uh, even c- c- competent uh, skills and uh, learning uh, and, and just plain mind power uh, in, into a position for her to be able to sit there and pretend she's an originalist without remarks from the from the conservatives and the Republicans. And I think that the other problem she had, of course, the major issue this week was about her sentencing record on child pornography cases. You know, she never could adequately explain that. And I, I think it is because of a generally soft approach to crime, a, a discomfort with punitive measures and that's part of her philosophy. I mean, she's a defense lawyer and that's fine. We, we need, we need great defense lawyers, but I think her instinct in, in these yeah. cases was to, uh, was to be lenient when the law and the prosecutors and, and the yeah. circumstances of the crime suggested very harsh sentences. Yeah. Ted Cruz referred to her sentencing in some of those cases as simply a, a slap on the wrist, uh, for, uh, predators, the child pornographers, uh, it, it is, it's appalling. And her, uh, inherent 
sense of privilege to decline to answer because she is a woman, she is black, she has special privileges, uh, and you will not uh, cross that line with her. Uh, Ted Cruz did so with abandon and good for him. Uh, he has been brilliant throughout, in my opinion. We have just received word, uh, Joel, that President Trump has filed a lawsuit against Hillary Clinton and other Democrats alleging they tried to rig the 2016 U.S. presidential election, tying his campaign to Russia. Acting, quote, I'm quoting here, acting in concert, the defendants maliciously conspired to weave a false narrative that their Republican opponent, Donald J. Trump, was colluding with a hostile foreign sovereignty. Uh, the former president uh, filing that suit today. Uh, uh, your reaction? Well, you know, these suits don't tend to go very far, but it is a useful talking point, I think, to push it back against some of the things that are being said and done about him in 2020 and some of the media hysteria over charges that never materialize into anything. And, you know, they keep pursuing him and pursuing him and pursuing him. So this is how he fights back. And, you know, good for him. I mean, he's got to fight fire with fire. And we need a fair contest in 2024. I do think he'll run. And we need the playing field to be level. We need it to be fair. And I guess in closing, I would say he's not going to be the only candidate. There, there are going to be many candidates. I think Republican voters, conservative voters will have a choice. But he certainly is out of the gate as the strongest candidate. And for all intents and purposes, he's the leader of the opposition. I mean, he's out there even today still saying things that crystallize the conservative viewpoint in a way nobody else can. So he's out there doing that every day. And I think I, I do think voters appreciate that. More than half the country uh, is desperate for his voice, for leadership and for his uh, strength in leadership, because there is so little leadership in the Republican Party. Mitch McConnell, uh, Kevin McCarthy, these are not leaders. Uh, Ronna McDaniel, not leaders, but they hold important uh, positions of power. This president, without a, without a job, is doing an incredible job as a, still the standard bearer for America First, which Americans now understand more clearly than ever uh, is an essential uh, primary value in any political candidate. And he is working to make certain, whether Congress or whether, uh, whether the Senate or governor's uh, offices, that uh, that America first plays prominently and, and bedrock conservatism has a, a, a welcome place uh, in, this, uh, in this election. Your thoughts about that? Well, I think the others are trying. I mean, I think, I think they're in the fight in different ways, but it is amazing how he is able to come up with the, the truth. You know, he always gets to the core of what the issue is. And, you know, for example, with Russia invading Ukraine, I mean, Republicans are still trying to figure out what their response should be. And the clarity Trump had about that in understanding that if he was unpredictable but forceful, if he showed he was willing to use force, let's say, against Soleimani, the general the terrorist general from Iran, that would send a signal he wouldn't have to go to war. Trump understood how to use power, and he also understands how to use rhetoric in a way that ordered the world to America's advantage. And I think you're right in the sense that Republicans still have to learn from that. I don't think Republicans have. I think they're trying, but they're not quite there yet. Yeah, and I think, too, there is this, this, this continuing uh, reluctance on part of the left, the right, Democrats, Republicans, not to give the president his due. He was right. He was right. He was right. 
And oh, yes, you know what else? It wasn't just instinct. Uh, it was intelligence. The man is far smarter than even his friends give him credit for, let alone his enemies. Uh, and that uh, I, that intelligence, I think, will be reflected in the results in this uh, election uh, this November. Uh, we always give you the last word here on this show, uh, all our guests. Uh, Joel, this is your time. Well, I think people should look at the example Trump set as the basis for future foreign policy. I've yet to see any Republican really come out and crystallize Trump's achievement in a, in a doctrine. And the achievement was be unpredictable, but be willing to use force, avoid large-scale military commitments, and use economic power when it will be effective, and it usually is. I think those four points really would be the Trump foreign policy doctrine. I've yet to see Republicans articulate it like that, but I, I think that's what has to happen. And then, you know, we need to get to these domestic issues. Inflation is a huge problem, and more spending the way Biden wants to do is not going to be the answer. So um, once we get through these foreign policy crises, once we have a better understanding of what America is and why it's worth defending, we'll be in a better place to deal with all of the issues facing our country. Joel, thanks so much for being with us. We appreciate it. Joel Pollack, Breitbart's uh, very best. Great to have you with us. Look forward to talking with you soon. Thanks, and I look forward to the next opportunity. Thanks for being with us today. Tomorrow, our guest will be the young conservative upstart in Ohio who's taking on the GOP establishment and lots of big money. His name is Josh Mandel. In a recent debate, he and his leading opponent, who's put $11 million of his own money into the race, had to be separated on stage over what most took to be an insult by Gibbons to the military and Josh Mandel's service in the U.S. Army. So please join us here tomorrow. Till then, God bless you and God bless America. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.